0: Welcome to another episode of Conde Detrimental. Dan Wallach, Dan Lust. We are back on the beat for another week of sports law. Now, Dan, behind the scenes, you and I were messaging uh, at the end of last week, should we do an episode on Matariza? And we said, eh, let's see what Monday brings. The weekend brought us in maybe a conclusion to the Matariza Bill story. So we will get into that the very kind of messy sexual assault and, and rape allegations. We're going to talk about that, the Bills punter. Another story that, that came across our radar late last week, Chet Holmgren, the number two overall pick in the NBA draft, suffers an injury while playing in a pro amateur event in Seattle. I got a couple of DMs, whether this was permissible under his contract and what happens. We're going to talk about that. Two very big stories that really kind of crossed again right, late late in the week. Vanessa Bryant's verdict comes in on the crash site photos case. Dan, we'll pat ourselves on the back. As we will mention, we, we kind of nailed what would happen. And last but not least, something that broke really late Sunday night. Minor league baseball all of a sudden might have a union on its hand, so we have two guests for that. We're going to have Brent Schrodenborg from USA Today, and then we're going to have Bill Shakin from the LA Times to discuss the minor league issue. Okay, Dan, laid out a bunch. Before we get into the topics, what's new in your life? Not, nothing sports law related, I'm sure. You know, I'm getting knee-deep in
1: writing a major analysis on the Florida sports betting controversy, which is now in the midst of an appeal before the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. I know I've been on shows and we talked about it last week in Conduct Detrimental, but I found a new angle, a new way of approaching how to break down this appeal. And I think people are going to be really interested and I'm going to latch onto this you know, analysis I do. That's what I've been working on. And I think I'll release it whenever it's ready, hopefully around Labor Day. It will give us something to talk about, at least on that controversy. It's a big case. It's It's the third largest market in the United States. So I'm excited
0: about finally finishing this and moving on to the next big story. Well, Dan, this past weekend, I was getting very excited for game one of the college football season happened to involve my adopted Nebraska Cornhuskers. Dan talking about sports betting. I have wagered a lot of money on Nebraska on the money line. I wagered a lot of money on Nebraska and a lot of parlays. Those parlays, Dan, were all successful except for one game, Nebraska losing as in a 12 and a half point favorite lost. Northwestern and my heart was torn out. Dan, my my sports betting season is not going off to a good start.
1: Well, I haven't bet since 1979. I'm much better at analyzing the legal underpinnings to it than I am actually betting on the game. So I know my strengths and weaknesses.
0: That's a good place to put it. Okay. So Dan, let's get rolling into a busy week of sports. I thought last week was busy. Dan, we had about six topics last week and all of a sudden we have another four big ones on our plate this week. The big one in football, Dan, and I was uh, very anxious to talk to you about it. Matt Ariza, the Bills punter. That is the guy, uh, the artist formerly known as the punt god. is not going to be doing any punting anytime soon. I'll lay out the facts pretty briefly, and Dan, I, I want to kind of get into the personal conduct policy with you. Matt Ariza, during last year's football season, allegations that he was involved in, there's no, sometimes I try to beat around the bush, this is a gang rape, Incident, allegation, whatever you want, whatever you want to call it. You know, I I don't like to get into all these messy details, but for purpose of this story, they are very important. This is an individual who's alleged to be a high school student who, you know, is saying that matterizer, whatever way you want to buy it is either propositioned or engaged in oral sex and or normal sex under California law where this, this incident occurred in California. There were obviously issues, very apparent issues of statutory rape concerns when you have any type of incidents. With someone who's under the age of consent this incident was allegedly reported was known uh again allegedly within the football organization within the san diego state university no criminal charges were pressed at, at least at any point even up until today why uh i find this this part interesting the part i will i will tell you it looks like the report is that san diego law enforcement called matt Arisen, kind of these uh, context calls to try to see what he would admit to and at least according to the la times who had this report initially Ariza admitted, not just saying he doesn't know the girl, he admitted allegedly to having some type of interaction with her, incident with her, and then later recanted it on that same phone call. So listen, my, my mind was percolating as to what we were going to talk about. Fast forward, Dan, you know, there was questions what the Bills knew. The There were some reports that the Bills knew about this incident in July. They drafted him, potentially, you know, uh, back in April, not knowing about it. We're not knowing about it. Sure, sure whatever. We're not sure about that. But Matt Ariza won the punting job. That was an in-camp battle, won the job over a guy named Matt Hawk, and then really within 48 hours of Ariza getting the job, winning the job, this lawsuit was dropped. There were certainly some conversations of back and forth settlement and whatnot, but the bills, by all by all accounts, seem to have given Matt Ariza this job, knowing that this lawsuit was very much a possibility. So, Dan, the last update in this, Matt Ariza has since been released by the Buffalo Bills. So maybe at some point this will make the conversation moot. But that's it. The whirlwind Riser story, it kind of came and went. And I'll, I'll give you the floor to kind of give your analysis here.
1: It kind of exposes a problem in that the shortcomings of the personal conduct policy don't reach back to an athlete's senior season or pre-draft season playing college football. And, and it places the onus on, each, on the individual NFL teams to each do their due diligence and and do their background investigation, it really creates an unlevel playing field and it leaves the NFL powerless to be able to discipline a player that's not yet a member of the National Football League. Like, I think there's one way that this can be alleviated in the future. I mean, when you or I, if we want to apply to become, you know, an attorney, or if you want to apply for a government position, you have to fill out all these disclosure forms, right? So maybe what the National Football League should do is have prospective draftees as part of their declaration of eligibility to enter the draft, maybe they need to fill out some disclosures as to whether they've been sued, whether they've been involved in any incidents where the police, you know, uh, investigated. Maybe the owners should be placed on the player, you know, just sort of disclose all these, you know, to the extent that there are any incidents so that if you lie about it or fail to disclose, then that could be a ground for disciplining the player. Great point. For not complying with, with the policy because, you know, how, how, how are individual teams ever going to hear about a case that hasn't been publicized, that hasn't led to criminal charges, you're going to to do public records requests in every law enforcement entity in the state of California, wherever a player may live? I think at some point, maybe the onus should be shifted onto the player to disclose whether there have been any allegations made against him And maybe that's something that could be the subject of collective bargaining, but I think prospective draftees, it shouldn't be too onerous to advise prospective NFL employers in the league, whether you've been accused of any misconduct within the last three years, five years, or what have you. I think it's an easy fix because without that, the teams are in an information vacuum and have absolutely no idea, and the league can't do anything about it.
0: Yeah, this this is, Dan, I think you laid it out perfectly, right? When you when you're trying to buy a house, right, you you the seller has to warrant what what they know, what they don't know. You have to ask them the questions. And I'm sure the question, right, was probably asked at some point of some team of Verizon. And my understanding is that. He would have been drafted early, right? The guy won the, the punter of the year award in college football. This is a guy, if you watch him, I, and I, the Bills drafted him in the fifth round, and people who follow me online, they know I'm a Bills fan – I was ecstatic when they drafted Matt Arise. Obviously, you and I didn't know anything about these allegations. The guy can punt the ball 80 yards, right? He literally can punt the ball the entire length of the football field. You could be pinned at your one-yard line. He could punt the ball to the other end zone. As interesting as that is, right? And I, I did a, I was speaking to some sports media friends. They all made the joke, which I'm sure you, you heard as well, like, oh, is Matt going to be next to Sean Watson? And I said very candidly on Friday, no, he's not. Because a punter, right, it's a luxury. It's not something you need to win football games. You need a good, if not great, quarterback to win football games in the NFL. You, don't need, you do not need a punter. So that's why, I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised at all that the Bills cut him, right, because they don't need him. I'm surprised at the timing. If the Bills knew, and there's some back and forth between the defense attorney and the plaintiff's attorney they were sniping in the media, right, like if the Bills knew that this could be anywhere close to the Deshaun Watson saga, Matt Ariza, he could be the best punter in the NFL, even though he's never played a snap in the NFL. He could be, right? Being the best punter in the NFL is like being the equivalent of like the number 40th quarterback in the NFL. It's nowhere near that. Yeah, I don't even know if it's that close. It's an important position, Dan. If it was that important, Matt Ariza would have been, or, or punters or kickers, they would normally be picked in the first three rounds of the draft. They're not. Most of the time, they're undrafted. If you just look at the history of the sport, most kickers, most great kickers and punters go undrafted. So how how important can they be? If he was a first-round draft choice, what
1: do you think happens? If he was a first-round draft choice, it's, not, it's in a different position, different position, defensive end, offensive tackle. If he's Evan I don't want to name other names, but if he's picked in the first half of the first round of the NFL draft, what happens to him?
0: Let's call like we see it, Dan. We made a joke on the last, uh, I don't want to say joke, but we, we made an observation. Unless you are accused of murder, right? I don't know what what would result in you being placed on the exemplist. And then you talk about a guy like Henry Ruggs with the Raiders, right? He's out of football. That's a guy that that is, at least in some way, shape or form, charged with causing the death of another person. I think if he was a first round pick, I don't think the bills would have cut paid. I think they would have with you. I don't think they would have. Dan, can I ask, let's, let's talk about this part. Now, personal conduct policy, as you, as you laid out, doesn't address past offenses, but Dan, can we talk about the fact that Roger Goodell still has his ability to place a player on the exempt list? Right? It was, isn't that still an option here? I don't think he could have placed him on an exempt
1: list for pre you know NFL employment conduct. That's the shortfall of the personal conduct policy. You know what teams can do is just you know cut bait, and that's the problem. I that's think. It. The, I think the burden of disclosure should be on the player rather than place the burden of investigation on a team because then you're creating an unlevel playing field where four or five teams may have good sources in the California legal community and they get this intel and 27 other teams don't. I think all that information has to be shared and funneled through the National Football League so you can create a clearinghouse and not necessarily, I mean, there was an actual police incident report. This was reported to the San Diego Police Last year before his draft, something like that should have been easy to discover by somebody, but at the very least, Matt Ariza could have been asked the question or could have filled out some kind of written disclosure. His agent could have provided that disclosure. There's no excuse in the world for an incident like that not to be known. And maybe the burden should be placed on the player. And that's something that the league and the Players Association should be able to modify. The, the, the union's never going to agree to it, but it's not unreasonable. It's not an unreasonable ask to ask a pers- Prospective employee, whether you've ever been charged or investigated for alleged criminal behavior,
0: right? Prospective employee, current employees, right? Nothing stopping them. Just yep. to correct one one fact, I don't know how much more there is here, but the attorney for Mataiza did the rounds, which he felt the need to. And once I saw that that Ariza's attorney was give, being given clearance to go out and, and and do the rounds, I'm like, this might be very problematic. And, and Ariza's attorney kind of insinuated, "Wow, how convenient!" You know, right after he makes the Bills roster was when this lawsuit is filed. And then, you know, some fact checking, it looks like, right, the Bills were aware of this, you know, it looks like in July, at least the number I saw the end of July, and it seems to be some type of pre-settlement demand that was made. I'm not sure if an offer was made back, but some back and forth. So it wasn't just, hey, let's wait, let's hold this thing under wraps for a year and wait until he makes the Bills roster or make some roster. that. That I think we can affirmatively dispel, Dan. I don't. I don't really have anything else on the Arisa saga. You know, my only point is that the Watson animal is very unique. It's going to be very hard for someone to say, is this the next Deshaun Watson saga? There are very few players of Watson's caliber at a position like that in, uh, in Houston, in major markets at Houston and Cleveland, that are going to command that much attention. And mind you, Dan, the riser we can find some precedent. Right, guys have been accused of rape before. As, as gross as that sounds, there had never been anything like Deshaun Watson with these massage allegations and quantity. So. You know, before anybody goes on on radio, and our, I know we have a lot of sports media people that listen to this, uh, it's it's a very high bar with Deshaun Watson. It's it's not a it's not something that happens. You know, it's never happened in the NFL, so it's a very different equation.
1: I think what you're going to end up seeing is that NFL teams and maybe even the NFL are going to just routinely file public records requests with the law enforcement agency in the city or the county where the college is located. Right. If, if a player plays for San Diego State, that's state school. So that's covered by FOIA. And it's also San Diego Police Department. Just just send in, you know, sort of boilerplate pro forma, you know, public records requests, you know, asking for any incident reports involving, you know, X, Y, Z player right. that played for any you know college or university covered by that municipality that, who, who might be a prospective NFL draftee. It just seems like that's the next level. And rather than have teams in the league play, you know, investigator, just have the player make that disclosure and representation to the league or team. But I think this is where you're going to see, you know, teams doing their due diligence in the future using the legally permissible public records slash FOIA request to do their due diligence on every prospective drafting
0: Dan, I don't have anything else further to add on, on that one. I think probably a good opportunity now, and certainly in a loaded episode. I wanted to make sure we hit this. Dan, Chet Holmgren, number two overall pick in the draft goes to OKC. If people remember that you know, draft night, Paulo Bonquero is the surprise pick at number one to the Orlando Magic, and then the question is, you know, what was that going to do to the rest of the, the draft order after Jabari Smith was originally supposed to go on? Chet ends up going number two to OKC. And there was a brief moment, just again, on the sports betting you know, saga. Oh, Chet Holmgren, who is he? Right. And if you haven't seen him, he kind of has a, a body like Kevin Durant or Sean Bradley, a very tall, lanky body. Right. It's not a body that you would think is going to be bruising in the post, but a unique body. And if you're an NBA fan, you'd call Chet something like a like a unicorn. He has a very odd game. He plays behind the three-point line. So it's a guy, okay, you could see him, you know, he's got a slight frame, but once upon a time, Kevin Durant had trouble bench-pressing anything. So just know, for Shed Holmgren's purposes, he's not this necessarily a pillar of health. He didn't have any real health concerns at Gonzaga, but his frame, enough people looked at him and said, this might not be a guy that holds up. So, Dan, Holmgren is playing at the Seattle Pro-Am game that's staged by former NBA guard Jamal Crawford. Guess who was playing in that game, Dan. LeBron James I watched the clip it went viral really like the first play of the game LeBron's on a fast break and Holmgren's trying to guard him whether they got their feet tangled or Holmgren just kind of misstep has a really bad injury it's a lower leg injury and he's out for the season so they're being kind of coy on what exactly the injury is Sam Presti the GM over there says it's not a fracture but it had me thinking again in the history of sports we have a lot of injuries and a lot of unavailability that's caused by off-site actions right Michael Jordan you know, famously during the Last Dance documentary, was not allowed to play pickup basketball, and he did right. We could talk about Madison Bumgarner, former Giants pitcher, now with Diamondbacks, using a fake name to be in the rodeo, or Yoan is trying to chase wild pigs, or Jeff Kent, former Giants second baseman. You know, I'm a Giants fan, if you're sensing the theme. I think he hurt himself washing his truck in his driveway. He slipped. All these crazy injuries, but the most obvious way you can injure yourself that's usually not permissible under a contract is playing a pickup sport, playing pickup football, basketball, baseball. So, Dan, I'll give it to you, right? I mean, it's an interesting question. Could the contract be voided? I mean, it's an interesting question. It will not be voided,
1: nor should it be voided. And here are the reasons why. First of all, Chet Holmgren is going to be the face of the franchise. This is an entry-level you know, contract. And Oklahoma City is going to want to ma- maintain a good relationship with the player. And even if he was a max player, probably wouldn't cancel the contract under those circumstances either. But as the future face of the franchise, they're going to want to keep him happy because Four, five, six years from now, he's going to become a free agent. He's going to remember how he may not have been treated so well at the front end. More importantly, this is an NBA-sanctioned event. I mean, I grew up in a time where I used to go to Harlem. You know, I used to watch summer basketball in Harlem. You know, you had the Rucker tournament and you had the West 4th Street basketball courts where Kareem Abdul-Jabbar made his bones of the day. I used to watch Chris Mullen play pro-am, you know, summer league basketball at, at gym, in gymnasiums in the Bronx. Players during the offseason they like to they like to play summer pickup basketball these are some some of these are sanctioned events that have the approval of the nba but it's a way that they can work on their game test their moves and i think it's usually done with the blessing of their teams unless there's a, a provision in the contract that restricts the player from playing in certain or so many games but i mean basketball lends itself to you know summer league basketball this is not like you know you know skydiving or playing some inherently or, or engaging in some inherently dangerous activity, like you know riding a motorcycle. NBA players have historically and traditionally played summer league basketball. Who can forget the capacity crowds that used to watch Dr. J at the Rucker Tournament when Kevin, Kevin Durant made uh-huh. his appearance at Rucker about that, 10 years ago? and played a historically you know, magnificent game. That's something that players have traditionally done. And since this one was played under the auspices of NBA sanction, there's never gonna be an issue. I think to the contrary, maybe Chet Holmgren could have a, a viable legal claim against the arena for, yeah, having a slippery floor and, and, and could sue for negligence. But but in terms of vitiating his contract or holding Holmgren you know, liable for engaging in, in, in irresponsible activity, I don't think those circumstances apply here. And, and I hope summer league basketball never goes by the wayside. It's such an important way to observe the game up close. You can see these players you know, like basically from behind a fence or, or from watching from the bleachers. It's such an important part of the culture and history of the NBA that I think all the circumstances line up on his side.
0: So I'm going to disagree with you, but I'm going to, <laughs> just briefly, I'm going to give a quote from Presty, the GM with the Thunder, quote, players are going to play in these uh, pro ams because the NBA is saying that they are okay to play in. The other thing is guys are playing all over the place, all the time, everywhere. If you have players that love to play, they are going to play basketball every time you step on a court, something like this could happen. It could happen in game, it could happen in practice, it could happen in scrimmage. Now, what? You know, Dan, I, it's funny that the players that you pointed out, Dr. J, Kevin Durant, Chet Holmgren, I, I can tell you from experience, and I can't say it on the podcast, but you could Google to figure out what case I'm talking about. In certain sports circles, if you are not a player with an A-level name, you know, right, these contracts, if you play football, pick up football, right? or pick up baseball, and it's not directly affiliated with the team, right? I'm not sure the contract with respect to an NBA-sanctioned event, maybe that's a little bit different. But these contracts, right? I look no further than the baseball examples I brought up, they are voidable. They don't, you don't have to cancel the contract. And certainly you never would with Chet Holmgren. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense with the Madison Baumgarner or of a high-level guy. But there have been and there will continue to be guys that are at the end of the bench that do something like this and get hurt, and we'll never hear from them again. And they don't have a big enough name where it'll matter. That's why at these Pro-Am events, it's very funny. You'll see these really big names playing in the events. And you're like, how are there other amateurs? So it's like kind of like the pros and the Joes. And I had this thought, you know, like recently, before I kind of put two and two together, how are there amateurs in the event? Maybe you should just have like all the pros, right? Just kind of have a fantasy draft. But those lower level guys on the bench would never be caught playing in these games because they'd be fearful for their status. It's just... They would well, I mean, if you a got a guaranteed sport. contract,
1: if you got a three-year or two-year contract, if you're a, if you're a bench yeah, player who's playing under a mid-level exception, and and you have like a couple of years left on your contract, I suppose you can play. But the prudent thing to do, if you're the player, is to let your employer know about it and have your agent engage in dialogue and, and communication. The team should never be sandbagged that you're even appearing in an event that they didn't know about.
0: They didn't like you, though, Dan. I, I can almost guarantee you if a team didn't like you, they were annoyed by your contract, if you were an over, overpriced player, the team would dump you, and they would look for every way to get out. As long as they, they thought that the PR wasn't outweighed by you know the, the harm that could come to the team, that's how these yeah. contracts are written. So we don't know. That's what we're kind of talking in hypotheticals here, because we don't know what home goods contract says. We don't know the actual relationship with the Seattle Pro-Am and the NBA. But, you know, that's a fair hypothetical. It might appear on, on, my, on a law school essay exam at some point. You know
1: what the classic case is? Remember Aaron Boone? Oh, Aaron Boone, right? He was a Yankee third baseman. And he played pickup basketball in the offseason following the 2003 season. And he hit that, you know, game seven home run, uh, sending Yankees into the World Series where they lost against the Marlins. But he played pickup basketball, destroyed his knee, and that opened the door for the Yankees to cancel his contract and then go after A-Rod. Changing the course of Yankee history, yeah, a little bit of sports law, Dan, and I, opening I, the door for the yeah. Boston Red Sox to break the curse.
0: And this, listen, sports law literally changed the course of baseball history. I think that's the point you're making. Yeah. Okay, Dan, let's let's close the book on this one. Let's talk quickly before we have our, our next guest on. Dan, a topic that that you and I followed very closely is the Vanessa Bryant wrongful death case, and obviously the crash site photos case we talked about last time. We're gonna have a guest on. We we mentioned it. Brent Schrotenborg over at USA Today. He's a fantastic follow over on Twitter. It's where I see all the stuff. And Dan, you and I were talking offline. He talks about a lot of the stuff that that we cover, but he was the only person that I knew that was inside the Vanessa Bryant Quorum. So we have him on to talk about really his, his assessments of closings, openings, cross-exam. I thought he was a good guest. Dan, any any um any thoughts on, on the Vanessa case before we move over to our conversation with Brent?
1: Yeah, I mean, everybody, you know, can agree that the conduct that was engaged in by the Sheriff's Department and Fire Department was kind of reprehensible. But for me, it's, a, it's an issue of proportionality. I mean, when you look at $30 million for photos that have been seen by less than 100 people, where this is not necessarily part of a pattern or practice that the County Sheriff's Department and Fire Department have engaged in previously, I think, I think we're really talking about interesting issues of first impression and also interesting issues for purposes of an appeal. And our discussion with Brent will focus a little bit or not a little bit, a lot of it on the next stages of this of this, you know, legal battle between Vanessa Bryant and, and Los Angeles County, because we're headed to post trial motion practice, as well as a potential appeal before the Ninth Circuit. So I think what we've done effectively with Brent was kind of go through where we see some of the major appellate issues.
0: Last episode, Dan, you and I recorded before the verdict came, I knew from Brent that closings were scheduled for that day. So there was always a chance, you know, the verdict was going to come in. But Dan, I think you and I laid it out. I think we said like, how is an LA County jury going to rule against Vanessa Bryant? And we talked about the spoliation. We said that that was probably a reason if Vanessa does win, that would be why. But you did caution that any type of verdict that's an excessive number could be appealable. So I think we certainly pegged that correctly. But yeah, at the end of the day, the headlines coming out, as Brent will explain, I think initially was reported as $16 million for Vanessa. The number uh, actually turned out to be $15 million for Vanessa Bryant and also for uh, Chris Chester, the other family suing. We talked about in the last podcast, which we discussed with Brent, that there was a $1.25 million offer was reached by the other two families. So two families settled for 1.25 each. And then LA County and the fire department, they get dinged for about 30 million for the the last two. So I'm not sure if it's a case that could have been settled, but certainly uh, I think it's a case that LA County would have wanted to have settled in hindsight. And
1: you hit the nail on the head. You know, we're not just lucky at predicting these outcomes. I mean, we've been practicing law for such a long time. Some of this stuff is so foreseeable as to, you know, where the you know, where the seams are. And for me, it was always a question not of liability, but just damages. And where, did, where, where, do, where do I see the amount? And I think the reasonable amount is somewhere you know, on the high single, uh, high seven figures, low eight figures. It didn't land too far away from that. But even at that number, it might be excessive relative to the actual public dissemination of the photograph. So
0: I guess we'll see. And with that said, let us kick it over to Brent Strotenborg of USA Today. Brent, welcome to Conduct Detrimental. How are you? Good. How are you? We are good. We are we are happy uh, to have you on, and, and we've been following mm-hmm. your feed the last couple of weeks. In our last episode, we alluded that we might have someone. On the show that has been in the courtroom covering this Vanessa Bryant crash site photos case. So we're certainly happy to have you. For those that don't know, Brent is a sports reporter at USA Today.
2: Do we say Brent sports reporter, enterprise reporter? Do we have a fancier title than that? It's a little of both. I cover all sorts of things. A lot of sports topics, legal topics and sports, business topics and sports. So yeah, that's that's accurate. And Brent's feed is one that
0: has been covering topics to Sean Watson, uh, this Vanessa Bryant case that we have been following closely. So we were looking for an excuse to bring Brent on. And once I, uh, you know, once I saw you were in the courtroom, kind of a no brainer. You know, Brent, we, we've spoke a lot on this show about the wrongful death case. And I was talking with friends over the weekend about, um, about the Vanessa Bryant verdict, which people saw. And they said, That's a kind of a low amount for Kobe Bryant's passing. And I go, that's actually not what this case was about. The wrongful death case was about the passing. That's a case that's settled. And we do not know the terms of that settlement. This is a case specifically dealing with the unauthorized or illegal or impermissible release of crash site photos depicting some of those victims. So Brent, I'm going to give you the floor to kind of explain where this case took off from that other case, which I know you covered as well.
2: Yeah, Vanessa Bryant, Kobe's widow, filed suit in September of 2020. This is a number of months after the crash itself. And as you mentioned, it's a separate action than the wrongful death case, which was settled last year. And it stem from the same crash, but it, it really stemmed from the actions of uh, a few deputies or fire personnel that were on the scene of the crash the day that it happened. These were the first responders who got up into that mountainous, hilly, foggy area. and a couple of them in particular just started to take a number of photos. Uh, one was a sheriff's deputy. Uh, by the name of Doug Johnson. Another was a fire captain by the name of Brian Jordan. They took a lot of photos. And then what happened after that, and, and the reasons why they did that, and what they did after that is all has been disputed. But it's it's the basis of, of this lawsuit. And that uh, she said that these, a number of uh, sheriff's deputies and fire personnel, in effect, Uh, improperly took these photos and then shared them with other sheriff and fire personnel uh, for reasons uh, that were no good, uh, no, no legitimate business reason for taking these photos. They, they alleged they were taking them for souvenirs for objects of amusement. A couple of them, uh, we know of a couple of cases where they ended up being shared or displayed with members of the public. One was at a two days after the crash, uh, a sheriff's deputy by the name of Joey Cruz, was at a bar in Norwalk, California, at a Mexican restaurant and uh, showed them to the bartender and maybe to uh, another patron sitting right next to him. Uh, the, this, they got surveillance video that shows you know, him looking at the phone and showing it and them laughing. And that was all part of the trial where they asked him what they were talking about and what they're laughing at. And then there was another case in February 2020, a few weeks after the crash, where Fire captain was showing photos of the crash scene at a, during cocktail hour, an awards event for fire and first responder personnel, and so both of those those two incidents that that were that were in public became known through whistleblower complaints. Uh, there was a, a restaurant patron at the bar that I mentioned with the sheriff's deputy that the bartender after he saw these photos, excitedly went around the room telling people what he just saw on this guy's phone. And one of these guys uh, didn't like it. One of these patrons at the restaurant didn't like it. He went home that night and filed a complaint on the sheriff's department's website saying this guy, there was a deputy at the bar tonight showing a photo of Kobe Bryant's decapitated body. That's actually what his complaint said. And From there, the sheriff got involved. And that's also an issue that's been disputed and and was up for debate at the trial was the sheriff, soon after that complaint came in said, everybody, in effect, we don't want these photos to see the light of day. It was basically an order to delete the photos. And so all these photos that were shared internally and with a couple of members of the public were all deleted. So they were never posted on a line. They were not posted on the internet that we've ever seen. They were sort of mostly shared internally among county personnel, Los Angeles county personnel. Then it got into an issue of what the definition of public dissemination is. What ended up at trial was a case in federal court where it was basically a claim about 14th Amendment and the so-called right to privacy and a so-called right to controlled the death, death images of family members, which was recognized by a case called Marsh versus the County of San Diego. It was a Ninth Circuit case where that recognized this right to control the death images of family members. And so that, that's what this trial was about. It lasted two weeks, just ended last week Wednesday. There were some state claims that that she made in her lawsuit too. The judge bifurcated those those out of it and made it just about this constitutional issue that trial which ended up in her favor she won 16 million but then there's this other thing i don't know if you saw it a story friday night the juror discovered an error in the verdict and said well she's not owed 16 million like we said she was in court and they pulled every juror and said yes this is this is our verdict 16 million for vanessa bryant they said she actually should receive 15 million so it was be, it was this weird situation that happened friday where they reduced her, they, she agreed to it. So it made it a lot less complicated, but she got 15 million from this jury as did the other plaintiff, Chris Chester, who basically filed the same sort of lawsuit against the County of Los Angeles. So he got 15 million too. He lost his uh, wife and daughter in the same helicopter crash.
1: Okay. Yeah. Uh, Brent now, when you, when you raise the Marsh case from the, from the, I guess the ninth circuit, there are some significant differences between the Marsh case and the Vanessa Bryant case. I mean, there were autopsy photos in the Marsh case that was sent to a newspaper with the intent that they be disseminated on a widespread basis. This seems to be a little bit more of a, a more circumscribed or narrower level of distribution to just, you know, you know, fire department and sheriff's department personnel. Where does Vanessa Bryant's $31 million, I mean, she asked for $75 million, but wasn't her theory here that she doesn't know what could end up happening to these photos, that her theory of damages was based upon the unknown because once the genie is out of the bottle, you can't control it. Is, is, that, is that where she gets her, her higher claim for damages? Because it seems like a high number for such a limited distribution.
2: Yeah, that was, the, the jury awarded her, most of that award from the jury was for future emotional distress. And as you mentioned, the 75 million dollar number that was put up there—that was by the other plaintiff's attorney, the attorney for Chris Chester—threw that number up in front of the jury during closing arguments. She, in fact, has been very careful not to ask for a specific amount. I think she's very sensitive about, you know, not being seen as being out for money in this case. Uh, she wanted what she said was accountability. However, you wanted to find that. But yeah, the, most of the jury award was broken down and. I, I want to say about 2.5 million of her award combined from the sheriffs and the fire department was only 2.5 million. And so the rest the rest of her damages was for future emotional distress. And the theory was, yes, it was she lived every day in fear that these photos would reemerge someday on the internet because they can't really account for what happened to every single one of them. There's this lot of talk at the trial about this this fire captain who turned in his computer without a hard drive and that hard drive, nobody knows where it is and it could still contain the photos and that there were these mystery people that received the photos from the fire department and they might still have them. They haven't identified these people yet and they could still have these photos. So that definitely was a big part of their argument in front of the jury was that she has to live every day in fear and anxiety, and that emotional stress, distress was what the jury was, a big part of what they awarded it for.
1: The appellate lawyer in me can't help but see these issues, you know, looming ahead in, in, in terms of post-trial motions and possible appeals. Now, you know, I read the defendant's trial brief and it kind of lays out the roadmap, you know, the county's, you know, uh, basically their trial brief lays out their theory as to why this isn't a policy in practice, the Menil, you know, uh, uh, municipal liability claim should fail, it wasn't a constitutional violation, harm is too speculative. What are you hearing about the battles that loom ahead? Because I think Vanessa Bryant, in the aftermath of, of the jury award, was quick to announce how she was going to donate this money to charity and spend this. But we got a long way to go here. There are going to be some major battles going on, motions for new trial, motions for judgment, notwithstanding the verdict, something called a remittitur, which could be part of a, a motion for a new trial you know, seeking a reduction of the damages award, and then, of course, appeals in federal court. Can you sort of summarize anything that you've heard about where this battle is likely headed?
2: I definitely think the county is, has an appeal in mind. Of course, they've been very careful what they say about it. They're going to talk it over with their client, but as they have always said from the beginning, there, there's an issue that I, they think the law was not correctly applied in this case, and that would deal with, you mentioned the Marsh case, and how that was, was not like this case. Uh, the Marsh case, as you mentioned, was a case where a former prosecutor gave uh, an autopsy photo of a child to the news media. And that, that's how they define public dissemination in that case. Well, this case, the county has said from the beginning in its defense for, they've been, they say this almost every single time they, they answer a question about it to the media. And that is that they said this was not public dissemination according to the Marsh standard, it it was internal sharing of these photos and internal display of these photos. And that is not Marsh, they said, and that therefore this, the the law was incorrectly applied is is an argument I could see them making. But at the end of the day, one of the the jury instructions that the judge decided upon was the jury could decide what public dissemination was, is it who is a member of the public was a question that the jury was told to decide on their own.
1: Okay. Well, let's look at the, the, how isolated this was, or whether this was part of a pattern of practice. I mean, we're looking at the Marsh case focusing on whether this is a, a constitutional violation at all, but then there's the separate issue of whether the County, you know, the Sheriff's department of the fire department can be responsible for this. If this was just a, a one-off, something that hadn't happened previously under the U.S. Supreme Court decision known as Monell to prove a constitutional violation against a municipal entity, you have to show that there's a pattern, practice, or custom of a long-standing nature. And there's a little bit of a dispute, or there was a dispute at the trial as to whether this was a a long-standing custom of of the county to allow these kinds of photos to be taken. Can you sort of drill down a little bit on how that issue was illuminated during the trial?
2: Yeah, the county repeatedly stressed uh, to the jury in its questioning of witnesses as well that there had never been an incident like this ever in the sheriff's department, which dates to the year 1850. (laughs) And the fire department, which dates the beginning of the 20th century likewise had no case like this. So therefore they say that there's no like long standing custom or practice of this happening. Well, what the other side did, the plaintiff side, was they they, they put on the sheriff these videos where the sheriff, after this came to light in around February of 2020, the, the sheriff talked about how it's common in law enforcement for cops and deputies and CHP officers to have what is called death books. And to have this sort of custom of internal sharing of accident scene photos and homicide and suicide photos, and so that they, they they kept playing this, these news media interviews of the sheriff saying this has happened since the the invention of the Polaroid, where law enforcement takes and shares these these gruesome photos, and they they, they sort of you know really stress that to the jury, and I, th- I think that kept kept sticking, but that that is where. The Manell claims that you're mentioning, uh, that's basically how the, the two sides fought that, is, is one side stressing the death books and we got to put a stop to this practice. And the other side saying, well, there's there may have been death books at other places, but there's no evidence of it at the, the county of Los Angeles. So that definitely was, you know, an important point that kept coming up.
0: The point, Brent, that we had in our last show and we weren't in the courtroom to know how this was handled. You know, Dan and I were kind of going back and forth about how one would prove this case, how one would prove The the fear that photos might come out further down the line. And I remembered a a point that seems like it came up in the uh, pre-trial conferences. Obviously, these photos, right, that was part of the condition. Come to us, the, the sheriff's department, the fire department, delete the photos, and there will be no personal ramifications on you other than, I think, something in your employment file. To me, the second I heard that, I go, that screams of spoliation. That screams of one side deleting evidence you know, whether indirectly or directly, but gaining an advantage in terms of the litigation. My spider sense was that that was a big portion of uh, Vanessa's lawyer's argument and Chris Chester. Do you have any uh, knowledge of how that was decided? The fact that the defendants deleted the evidence and so it couldn't be used against them? Did that come up at all during the liability phase?
2: Yeah, it did. I mean, it was a big part of the trial that that, uh, the the judge before the trial decided that the uh, plaintiffs could put on evidence of this destruction of the photos and that they also could presume that that evidence which was destroyed was negative for the county. And that that was an important, you think um, if if the jury keeps hearing about this destruction of photos, um, it, it, it sort of really has a strong smell of a consciousness of guilt in a way. And it's, it just doesn't look good. And so the jury heard over and over again how these these photos disappear. Why would anybody get rid of photos if they were any, any, had any value to like a legitimate investigation? So yeah, the, the jury was told right before in, in, and in the instructions and, and closing arguments that you can presume that the evidence that was destroyed was negative against the fire department and the sheriff's department. So, yeah, that was a uh, definitely,
0: yeah, a good part think- of the case. It's uh, it's what we call the what's an adverse inference, right? Uh, just because right. You can't find a body at the end of the day, right? This is a different type of example, but the other side, and in, 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 in let's say if it was a murder case, something like that. You can't be rewarded for destroying evidence, photographs, this and that. That that's why the rule exists. Grant the other the other question I had in mind, and I know you were following this closely. I think I got this from you once upon a time. The prior plaintiffs, the ones that had settled before this case, my understanding is that they settled for $2.5 million, two and a half million dollars to families. So you said a number which I, I wrote down, right? You said that two and a half million. Was awarded for you know compensatory damages. Is that your
2: understanding from from this time around? The county, I think it was last October, reached a settlement with two of the families of the crash victims, the Mauser family and the Altabelli family, and they each got one point two five million. I don't know the other terms of that deal other than the amount, uh, which was revealed in a county supervisor meeting. But I know the county, of course, wanted to settle with Vanessa for a long time too, and the fact that she didn't. I think spoke to what she wanted all along in this trial. I I really think that what she really wanted in this case is just my personal, you know, uh, perception of, of, of her and and especially what happened at trial was she wanted those deputies to get on the stand in front of her and answer questions in front of her about what they did. I don't, I, I really don't think, I know it's a cliche to say that I'm not I'm not interested in the money, but I really think that she wanted a trial all, all along to have these guys answer for themselves. Right. And I, and I think at least from what I read on the
0: case, it seems like either the opposing counsel or the judge had to advise Vanessa Bryant's lawyers that having these, uh, you know, these law enforcement personnel, having them lose their jobs was not something that the jury could actually order. So, Brent, I, I guess I, I want to leave this to you as an open ended thing. I mean, we've, we've asked kind of pointed questions about what happened because we want to inform our audience about what happened at this trial but is there anything either from openings or closings that really stuck with you, or maybe some form of uh, something on cross-exam that really stuck with you that you think is important to tell.
2: There's so many things. It was a fascinating trial on so many different levels. It was very emotional, you know. There's a, a, there's a, like an angry undertone to it, and then of course it was sad. One day that really stuck out. I mean, her testimony was very compelling. I thought she really, you know, connected with a jury. She she cried throughout it. She she was really good and very effective for her case on the witness stand. She testified for almost three hours. There was a day that before that, though, I remember it was like a Monday after the trial started on a Wednesday where these deputies got on the stand one after the other. The, they At one point, they were named, some of them were named defendants in the case, but there weren't, for the purposes of this federal trial, there were not any named individual defendants. But like this deputy, Joey Cruz, gets on the stand and right in front of her, the guy who shared the photos at the bar at the Mexican restaurant just completely had conflicting testimony from what he said in his deposition and and, and in a previous internal investigation it was just this other fire captain who took photos of the scene and shared them with people he he got off the witness stand he stepped off the witness stand three different times in distress saying he couldn't answer the questions or he's having flashbacks ptsd flashbacks from what he saw and i really it just sort of smacked of him being uncomfortable in front of Vanessa Bryant. And, and all these guys just were not very good that day on the witness stand. And it just sort of crystallized for me. Like, I think this is what she wanted. She wanted these guys to squirm on the witness stand. She's not interested in money. She wanted to hear them answer for themselves. And I, I think that's she got what she wanted in, in that regard. But that, that's just a day of testimony that stood out for me. And, and it, the whole thing was really interesting on many levels, just did the testimony, but also this theory, what they ended up with with is sharing these photos with like a couple people outside the county. Does that amount to public dissemination? And what they arrived at was the judge said, well, we're gonna have the jury decide what is public dissemination? and Who is a member of the public? Is a member of the public a sheriff's deputy? Doesn't matter if they have a badge or not to be a member of the public, and that, that was an, another discussion at the trial. But it's hard to give you one answer about what sticks me with me about this trial. There's so many different things about it.
0: You know, I, I just have one one other thing, at least from from my vantage point. The one part point that we should discuss. You know, this this case, uh, it's been in, in at least my consciousness for you know over two years since it since it happened. The lawsuit was filed very quickly. I, rem- I remember it was filed on uh, I think it was two twenty four. It was the it was the you know, the day for Gianna's number and Toby's number, if if memory serves. But I I think, Dan, you and I had a conversation once upon a time that you didn't need to file the lawsuit that quickly. There was no statute of limitations that was running within 60 days or whatever it was. So to me, it seemed like a case that was never about money. This was the wrongful death case. In this case, I've always got that impression. The final chapter of this case... Vanessa Bryant, the reports are that she's donating the money that she received from this case to the Mamba and Mambasita Foundation. So I think, Brent, to your uh, inclination and mine, the money is being donated. So we can talk about how much money Kobe was worth at the time of his passing. Forbes, I think, reported it at $600 million. But, it, it, you know, it's not a case where Vanessa needed necessarily that, that money. Obviously, with additional streams of revenue still coming in, we could talk about shoe deals and apparel deals and whatnot. But I think we can, you know, affirmatively say between the three of us here, the evidence shows that this was not a case about money. I think I think that's the conclusion that you reached and, and that we had as, as this thing started. Dan, do you have anything, anything, any other questions?
1: Sure. You know, one of the one of the really interesting, you know, undertones of this is that these are public agencies. The damages are going to be coming out of the budget for law enforcement. The public is essentially paying the damages. So you have this weird, I guess, not dichotomy, but this interesting backdrop of the public determining the damages that should be paid by the public, not by a private corporation. So I just want to get a sense of how you sense the jury was reacting to both sides presentations of the case. Obviously, this was a plaintiff's verdict, but were there any tells from the jury during the course of the trial that led you to believe uh, they're going to they're win this and get a lot of money? At what point? Did you think the case was won?
2: Probably when Vanessa got on the stand and wept openly and described her pain and uh, talked about living in fear of these photos reemerging at any minute. I mean, I, I think that it was hard for the jury at that point to say, we we have to deny this this widow when she's suffering so so badly. And it, it, I, I, I pointed out from the beginning of this case, too, is like, think of how much of a mismatch this was. We have this widow of this Los Angeles sports icon. Versus mm-hmm. this large, you know, sort of faceless government bureaucracy, and you know, like government is not exactly popular all the time, to put it mildly. And th- th- these cops said that that were accused of this egregiously insensitive behavior, just from the beginning, it was it was a mismatch. And and then when she gets on the stand, I mean, I don't, I, I just couldn't see how the jury was going to deny her um, in this case, uh, even though the county made. So many fine and technical points about what is public dissemination and, and and that sort of thing. I just think it that that's all lost when you get into the emotion of it, and what what sticks with you is her testimony. Yeah, talk about mismatch.
1: You know, usually when the government is represented in cases like this, normally it would be the county attorney's office or or some you know law firm that small law firm that specializes in representing governments. Did you get a sense in the quality of the lawyering? that there may have been a mismatch because we have Vanessa Bryant, probably represented by a uh, top tier firm that specializes in this kind of work and they were working on a contingent fee basis. Did you get a sense that there was a mismatch in the level of lawyering between the two sides? And as a sports law podcast podcast, That's always a question I'm thinking about when when assessing the relative merits and strengths of the two sides' presentations.
2: Yeah, I don't think there was a mismatch in terms of counsel. You know, this wasn't like county staff counsel that was trying this case. It was an outside counsel, outside firm, Miller Barondas. And they've been on this from the beginning. And I just think you know, their hands were tied, so to speak, with the emotions of this case. I, I don't think that they, I think they made really good arguments. I just thought, I, I thought they did a fine job in terms of defense. I just thought they had a bad hand to deal with in this case. So I think one of the things they did too, is they they basically had a uniformed uh, fire department employee at the defense table every day to, <laughs> to kind of put a face on who the defendant is, you know, like that. And they, they kept emphasizing, you know, like the, these are first responders you know these are the people that help us that help you in these time these kinds of emergencies and they they try to make that sort of emotional appeal to the jury and that you got to remember that these are the guys that are going to dangerous situations, and they the, they do all these good things for the public, and they, they kept Brent, emphasizing that. Brent,
1: Brent, that's so cheesy. I mean, the guys, <laughs> these guys were off duty at at bars and, and at gala events. They they weren't you know rescuing people from burning buildings when these photos were disseminated, which you know when I think about where the dollar amount ultimately landed, fifteen million, you know, thirty million overall how did this case ever get to trial? If I'm the county, I'm offering somewhere in that vicinity just to avoid having this go to trial. What was Vanessa Bryant's pretrial demand and why didn't this case settle when we know now that the final damage number sort of landed in a range where this probably could have been settled at that number pre-trial.
2: Yeah, I mean, I didn't. There, it wasn't made public what whatever her demand was. It, I, that was closely guarded. But I mean, it, the other two families that settled that, that also brought these lawsuits over the photos got 1.25 million each. And the county said after that that they were certainly opening open to giving her at least that. I think it's fair to assume they they offered her, and I don't know for sure that they offered her a bit, quite a bit more than that. But I've done story on this a while back about what does she want? What did she want? (laughs) It was sort of a mystery because you just don't see this very often where somebody is dead set and taking a case to trial no matter what. And I think the county could have offered her a very, very large amount of money, whether it was 15 million or 20 or 30. And I'm convinced that she still would have wanted to go to trial that she really just wanted to get these guys on the witness stand and watch them squirm.
1: I really feel that there are multiple issues set for motion for new trial, motion for judgment, notwithstanding the verdict, Ninth Circuit Appeal. I mean, the, the, the uh, county's trial brief lays it all, all out in painstaking detail. And I think they've got some good arguments. I'm not saying they're going to win, but it's going to be a long time B- between now and when there's ultimately finality in this case. The county's going to kind of bond this judgment so she's not going to collect any of it for quite a while, not that she needs it. But I see this ultimately going down the appellate road unless there's a settlement. I, I, I think I think if she were wise, she would probably take a she should she should take a settlement at something less than 15. Otherwise, it's just going to be tied up in the in the appeals court for you know another two, three years.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, the, the county has even brought up uh, the dops case that that uh, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, saying, well, any of these sort of rights that, are, that stem from the 14th Amendment are all in question now, saying that it's not even really good, like marshes might not even be considered good law anymore because ah, of what happened with Dobbs. But that's just <laughs> one thing they threw out as far as an appeal that sort of suggested an appeal.
1: Yeah, one of the one of the really unusual situations where in a liberal market or state, state, uh, they're clinging to uh case law precedent that's favored by conservatives. It's just it's just one of the, one of the unintended consequences sometimes of right. these types of Supreme Court decisions, you don't know how they could impact other cases in other areas going going forward. So uh, I'm I'm looking forward to hearing about that and and seeing the different ways that this you know case veers you know in the post trial practice as well as before the Ninth Circuit. I think there's a really strong Manel claim by the county uh, that this doesn't reach the threshold for municipal liability. There are issues over whether the deputies were acting under color of state law. There's the amount of the damages, the weight of the evidence. I think, listen, this case should have been settled a long time ago, but I think the battle has not been completely lost. and, and, And I think there are some really good grounds for an appeal here. And ultimately, this will be decided by the Ninth Circuit.
0: Yep. I think that's a good summary right there. Brent, thank you for coming on and sharing your wisdom from the court. And we'll see. Yeah, we'll, there's was, another battle here, but that was fantastic. We really appreciate it. This was great. Thank you. This was awesome. Thank you very much, Thank Brent. you.
2: Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: So that was Brent scrotenborg You can find him on social media at Skrotenborg. That is S-C-H-R-O-T-E-N-B-O-E-R. Dan, I thought he was excellent. The one thing that I'll, maybe it's you. I don't know, you know, who who I have my gripe with, but I'm not sure that Vanessa would have settled this case for any amount of money. That's, that's at least my inclination right this case was not about money this case was about sending a message looking those people in the eye so at the end of the day i'm sure she's happy with 15 million dollars but she was asking for a number in excess of 40 million so i'm not sure that she that this case was one that she wanted to be settled beforehand if that makes sense
1: i think everybody has their price but i don't think that gap could have been bridged pre trial i think she was i think she would have been happy if they had offered her 30 or 40 million dollars she probably would have taken that and there'd be no trial Look at what she went through emotionally. I think it became a matter of the the distance between the two sides views views of the numbers. The county wanted in all likelihood to pay her maybe a little bit more than what they had paid the other victims families and that wasn't nearly enough because she knew that she could walk in there as a public figure and with with Kobe Bryant being such a revered, you know, person in the NBA and, and, and in Los Angeles that she could walk in there and make a compelling case for a record, staggering damage award. She had that in her favor. And I don't think the county was prepared to accept that. And they, they believed that they were going to get this dismissed on summary judgment. And maybe they still feel that in post-trial motion practice or even on an appeal, they'll be vindicated. But, you know, once the jury has spoken, that's, the, you know, you have to make her the favorite to basically get that sustained on appeal. I think the county messed up here by not coming off of what probably was a very low offer and not meeting her somewhere closer to what she was seeking because she was going to get that you know from a jury there's no question that this was such a, a nearly preordained result once the judge allowed these claims to go to trial
0: yeah and I don't know if we would have known the number and Dan to the point that you raised in our conversation with Brent and, and in our last episode I'm not sure if that 15 million what what it was based in and I, and Brent didn't provide it which I'm not sure you know he would have all the details right but you know I don't I don't know how that was calculated that that seems to be a number just like, you know, if somebody asked you to put a price on like emotional pain and suffering, it's not usually quantifiable. It's just it's just not right. You're going to have to look the jury in the eye and, and you know, you're going to have to figure that out. I don't I don't know. We don't know the arguments that got the jury to 15 million. But that's going to be the question on appeal. Dan, as the appellate lawyer between the two of us, do you I mean, listen, you usually write with these things. We we don't always nail the sports betting picks. We usually nail the law. Do you think this is a number 15 million that's going to hold up on appeal?
1: That's I'm I'm glad you asked that question. I don't think it will. I don't know if it's not held up on appeal or whether as a part of a motion for, for a new trial, the judge reduces the damage award is almost like a remititor. In state court, you file these motions for remititor to reduce the damages. In federal court, you may have to file it as a motion for, for a new trial, but there's so many issues here. The issue of municipal liability, whether the high bar has been met to show a widespread pattern practice or custom. I don't think that bar has been cleared here by Vanessa Bryant. And then the reasonableness of the damages awards. I think the county has a number of compelling arguments when this goes to the Ninth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. So I think my prediction, and I, and I hate to say a prediction, but I think the outcome will be altered either as a result of a post-trial district court ruling or as a Ninth Circuit appellate ruling, I don't think the, the $15 million is going to stand when all is said and done, which means to me that if I'm representing Vanessa Bryant, I probably try to move to get some kind of a settlement, maybe maybe agree to some lesser amount by a few million dollars, because she got what she ultimately came for, which is her day in court, a jury finding that the L.A. County Sheriff's Department and, and Fire Department violated her constitutional rights, engaged in conduct which shocks the conscience and awarded her 15 million dollars. She got all of that vindication in, in a jury verdict. Now I think uh, her attorneys should should focus on sustaining that verdict either by agreeing to some settlement to forestall or prevent an appeal or, or something along those lines. I, th- I think they've got I think they've got to protect. This record by agreeing to a settlement in which they agree to give back a little bit of that money. Otherwise, they jeopardize the whole thing by having the Ninth Circuit review this issue of whether this is a widespread pattern, practice, or custom when it's never happened before, you know, at the sheriff's department level.
0: Yeah. And I and I think just to, to that point of the prediction, Brent was so funny. I was looking at Brent's Twitter feed and I I had not known about that reduction from 16 to 15. Everyone retweeted and was quoting the $16 million verdict. And then Brent, who's, you know, the guy in the courtroom goes, yeah, they reduced it from 16 to 15. It was a whole technicality, a whole issue, but Vanessa let it happen. Right. So that gives you a little bit of an inclination, right? Maybe, right. Vanessa is going to be inclined to accept some type of money to avoid a protracted legal battle because this money's going to charity, right? It's not going in Vanessa's pocket. So, you know, okay. maybe, maybe that's right. Maybe that's right, Dan.
1: I think what our listeners need to understand is that when you're, when you're prosecuting a claim of municipal liability under Section 1983, this is not imputed liability automatically. This is not vicarious liability, where if the deputies engaged in the tortious conduct, you impute that automatically to the Sheriff's Department to find a city, county, or municipal defendant liable for violating constitutional rights under a Section 1983 claim you have to show something more than just vicarious liability. You have to show the county's culpability by fostering a a longstanding pattern, practice or custom, meaning there has to have been some repetition or some prior notice that this has been a problem within the LA County Sheriff's Department. And I think that evidence may be lacking here, which if I'm representing Vanessa Bryant, I'm advising her of the high risk that you're gonna lose the whole thing if this goes to the Ninth Circuit. So I think the smart play, if I'm representing and counseling Vanessa Bryan, is settle, maybe settle for $10 million
0: and have this remain in the W column. Okay, so I think it's time to move over to our fourth and final topic. A reminder, this podcast is sponsored by Themis Bar Review, the top bar prep company in the galaxy. In the next couple of weeks, months, we're gonna to start to get some bar results back and I have a feeling. Those that have passed will be our friends at Themis. And don't worry, if you did not pass, Themis will, will treat you kindly. Reach out to us. We have our special promo code. We don't even tell you what it is anymore because people just reach out and they're like, what could you do for me? So you can learn some negotiation powers by us and we will hook you up with our friends at Themis with a very, very sharp uh, discount code and they are worth every penny, even if you do not get the discount code. But um, Themis Bar Review, head to themisbar.com slash con detrimental. Our fourth and final topic, Dan, the breaking news in the eve of the night. That is that the minor leaguers might all of a sudden have a union on their hands. Bill Shaken, the baseball reporter over at the LA Times, has been a guest with us in the past to talk about Trevor Bauer. He had some very interesting takes on uh, the minor league saga. Uh, And so it's certainly tying together a couple of our previous stories. We've had obviously Garrett Brocious on the show to talk about the minor league players lawsuit, which has since been settled. We've had Jim Quinn on to talk about the lawsuit that maybe was because of that minor league lawsuit, the fact that 40 teams were contracted from the minor league's and now this is the third logical step as minor leaguers continue to grow powers, minor league teams continue to get uh, retracted, something had to change and it looks like minor leaguers will start to have a union. So our guest, Bill Shaken, he's fantastic. Dan, any thoughts before we move over to Bill?
1: No, no. I think it's just, uh, you know, perfect timing. We had this story break while we were, you know, in the midst of planning this episode. So this is for conduct detrimental, a, a rare episode where we have two stellar guests, two guests in one episode. And I think, I think we're almost burying the league. Vanessa Bryan is such an important story, but the battle over unionizing minor league baseball players is one that's going to you know, be at the forefront over the course of the next year. This is going to be a major developing story that I think we're just, today we're scratching the surface of and we're, we're going to sort of highlight the early stage of what is going to probably be a very protracted and interesting battle over whether the future of minor league baseball is going to be under its own separate union.
0: With that said, let us kick it over to Bill Shaken. Bill, hey, this is uh,
1: Daniel. Thanks for joining us on Conduct Detrimental. I was taken by your article today about Major League Baseball Players Union wants to represent minor leaguers in one line. One line really got my attention. And it's, you know, this could have all changed without the intervention of the players union, but the reforms, the prior reforms that Manfred and the owners have made with the minor leagues to quote your article, largely have been reactive rather than proactive. Can you shed some light on how this all ended up where it ended up today with the union having to get involved? Because so many of these issues were really laid at the feet of the league previously, and it led to the the union's involvement. Can you shed some light on what you mean by the reactive rather than proactive comment
3: sure it's sort of a natural thing in baseball and really in any industry to say we do it this way because we've always done it this way and if you look on the field in baseball a lot of things were done one way because they had always been done that way until analytics came along and then like maybe we shouldn't butt so much maybe we should steal only if we're successful maybe we should hit the ball out of the park more so in this light Major League Baseball had had what it really considered as an apprentice program for the minor leagues. They thought these were seasonal employees that worked to get better at their craft. And if they made it to the major leagues, they could hit it rich. But what has happened along the way is that both in legal cases and in public actions through advocacy groups and on social media, people have been made aware that baseball, which is a 10 plus billion dollar industry every year, has been paying major league players you can argue close to the poverty line maybe below it maybe above it depending on how you calculate but certainly not a great wage and when you look up and see major league organizations could have done what's done in hockey which is have a union where minor league hockey players are making $50,000 a year and the top level of you know baseball minor leaguers are making 11 or 12 they could have moved in that direction But they chose not to. Every little step was sort of kicking and screaming, if you will. Okay, we'll do this in response to the lawsuit. We'll do this in response to some external pressure. And whether it was salaries or housing or food, it's gotten better, absolutely gotten better. And the owner should get credit for that but it hasn't gotten better enough. What
1: struck me was, uh, you know, something you laid out the litany of cases. And of course the the dingy living quarters, the stingy meals. I mean, they live in a way that's not even commensurate to like a living wage and raising a family. I mean, you can't support a family even on that level of income.
3: Yeah, and when the Senate Judiciary Committee sent a letter to Rob Manfred Recently asking him to explain this. He said, Hey, wait a second. You guys aren't counting signing bonuses, which are very good for the very top players in the minor leagues, but don't really amount to as much for the guys lower down in the draft. And in fact, half the draft got eliminated when they killed off 43 minor league teams. So some jobs are gone. But also, Manfred said, Look, most of the guys in the minor leagues, I don't think he wanted to use the word cannon fodder, and he did not, but they're essentially people that are there to provide opponents for the guys who are the real prospects. And he said, in a few years, most of them wash out. They're still in their early twenties. They've got their whole life ahead of them. We provide them with college scholarship assistance. If they want to go that way, that was the argument. It wasn't like our system is broken and we need to find a way to fix it. And I think the announcement was a reflection of people getting frustrated and realizing, you know, Major League Baseball voluntarily is not going to bring up the standards to the level that the minor league advocacy groups see. And the only way to do that is collective bargaining.
0: We've had the lawyers on our show associated with both of those two cases, the two ones that you were insinuating. When minor leaguers sued back in 2014, that was the recent settlement of $185 million after a judge found that minor leaguers should be considered year-round employees who had that lawyer on. Garrett Brocious, no relation to Scott Brocious, but, you know, friend of the show. And then um, we had the lawyers for the other case on, Jim Quinn, with respect to the the actual retraction of those 43 minor league teams, kind of all related to one another. So if any of our our audiences listened to those past episodes, we said, I don't know what the next saga of this is, but minor leaguers seem to be gaining more strength in the the legal community. So this should not come as a shock to to anyone. Bill, you know, kind of on that, we know the news kind of broke in the middle of the night that all these cards are being sent to minor leaguers across the country. Do you have any uh, kind of idea sourcing of the time frame of of when we actually might see a union with respect to minor leaguers?
3: I don't. And I don't think anybody can really give you a good time frame at this point, because a lot of that depends on how Major League Baseball chooses to respond. So what's happening starting last night and going into this week is that the Major League Players Union has sent what it's called an authorization card to minor league players. It essentially says sign here And you can let everybody know that for matters of collective bargaining, the Major League Players Association will represent you. Now, what the players union is trying to do is not to bring everybody into the same union. This would be a separate union for minor league players under the major league umbrella, because, of course, the collective bargaining concerns are very different at the minor and major league levels. If that happens relatively soon, if within a few weeks the players union gets enough cards back, and 30% is the limit under federal law, where you can say, okay, this can trigger an election. Do you, does everybody want this union or not? Then it's up to Major League Baseball to see how they respond. And again, this is typical in, in labor relations. The employer can do one of two things. You can say, okay, we see that there's a lot of interest in forming a union. We'll go ahead and recognize the union as the collective bargaining representative for the players let's sit down and start talking about a contract. That doesn't happen that much. The other option that happens more often is that the employer says, you know, we think there actually should be an election. We want everybody to have their voice heard, not just the some people who turned in the cards. And in the time that it takes to plan and stage an election, often an employer will say, here's why we don't think it's a good idea for a union. Here's all the things that could go wrong. The union says everything will get better, Here are some ways it could get worse. That happens a lot. Uh, You can see just what's happening with Starbucks, for example, these days. So that could happen. And Major League Baseball could also say, you know what? Everybody you think should be in the union, we don't think is properly in the union. And that could be a fight through administrative means through the National Labor Relations Board. So I don't think any of this happens quick, even if Major League Baseball recognized the players association as the bargaining agent for minor leaguers tomorrow, which is not going to happen. It still takes months and sometimes years to negotiate a first contract. So I don't think this is going to help, frankly, the majority of minor league players right now that are playing right now, but I think it will help the guys down the road.
1: Yeah. About the 30% threshold. I think the, uh, the threshold to move to the vote potentially is that, that the, uh, MLB MLB MLBPA has to secure 30% of those minor leaguers to sign the the card. So the question I have is what steps or what messaging would would Major League Baseball engage in at this stage to try to undercut or prevent the 30% threshold from ever being reached? Is there something that MLB could potentially be doing to counter message to sort of dissuade some of the minor leaguers from, from turning in their cards, or is this something that they don't even touch until there's a voting an actual voting on whether to to have a union?
3: Well, it was not a coincidence that this news broke late on a Sunday night. I think it was about 11 or midnight back East where major league baseball is headquartered because the union had already set up meetings all day. Zoom meetings today, log on whenever you want, bring us your questions. We'll tell you what you want. The union has reached out to all the player agents who would still be in business. This doesn't disenfranchise any of the player agents and to try to get the ball rolling before major league baseball could plan any kind of counterattack. We haven't seen a statement from major league baseball to this point. So it's anybody's guess how they'll respond. But the standard thing basically is sit back and see what happens because maybe they don't get enough cards signed at all. But if they do, you know, and you want to fight it, You can have months before an election to fight it. It doesn't happen in a week or two. There's one nugget
0: I I took from your article, which, you know, I, I, uh, Dan and I are both sports law professors in our own right. Uh, Dan maybe knew this. I did not know this. The specifics of hockey, right? We think about baseball as being, you know, uh, maybe at one point it was the number one sport. Now that maybe the two, number three, we'll say it's three. Hockey is either four or, or beneath that, right? I'm just going to quote from from your article, which everyone should check out. It's going to be on, on our timelines. Quote, the salary for a AAA player, triple A baseball player starts at about $14,000. The salary for a player at the highest level of hockey's minor leagues starts at about $52,000. The minor leaguers in hockey are unionized and now the minor leaguers in baseball might be too. That was astonishing. The fact that that the minor leaguers in hockey are earning that much more than, than baseball players. I mean, that's that seemed I'm like, is that is that a misprint? And then I looked it up and I'm like, no, that is accurate. That I mean, that's wild. That could have tremendous ramifications, just like we saw baseball cut out 43 teams when um, you know, they saw this settlement down the pike. I mean, this this could, I mean, I don't know what baseball's how they're gonna respond, but that's gonna put a huge dent in the in the amount of just economics of baseball, I would think.
3: Yeah, I asked Rob Manfred about the comparison with the minor league hockey players last month. And he said, look, there are more minor league teams in baseball than there are in hockey which is right now. true right now um, minor league hockey is and he didn't say it quite this explicitly but it it's more geographically centralized so you don't have the cross-country travel maybe that you do in minor league baseball but on the other hand the numbers are the numbers right this is baseball everyone looks at statistics and While again, Major League Baseball has taken some steps to improve life, improve travel, improve scheduling, and improve salary. 14 versus 52 stands out. It's a number that minor league baseball players, I can tell you, are very aware of. The nonprofit Advocates for Minor Leagues has published these numbers repeatedly over the past year or so. Do I think that minor league baseball players will get $52,000 a year? Probably not can they get something more than 14,000? Probably yes. Well, I think the disparity is
1: further magnified by the revenue differential between NHL teams and, and major league baseball teams. I mean, the you know, the level of revenue generation of the respective leagues is just it's a, it's at a different stratum in baseball, which which makes that disparity even all the more galling. I mean, when you you know, before you really look behind the numbers. That's just insane to me that you were able to Kind of, kind of highlight that comparison when you think of baseball being the most popular, second most popular sport, and hockey. You know, is sometimes not even listed on the scroll. You know, with the, you know, on, on the websites, it comes like sixth or seventh after you know NASCAR and and some other sports. And I have to say, I don't know if I agree with Commissioner Manfred's rationale for for explaining the difference. There are there are close to thirty hockey teams. They carry on these, on these rosters at the highest level, of the minor leagues, they carry, you know, at least 20 players per team. You're looking at in in all likelihood, in excess of 600 minor league hockey players that, that comprise that average number. Uh, I I don't think you're talking about thousands in major league baseball. So I think it is an apt comparison to make.
3: Yeah. When Manfred wrote back to the U S Senate, to the Senate judiciary committee, he said, look, we spend a billion dollars on minor league operations every season. And he said specifically this season, what do we get in revenue for the minor leagues? $25 million. So we use 10% of our revenue and our return is 0.2%. I could see major league owners who have been very insistent about containing costs on various fronts over the past few years, looking to football and looking to basketball and say mm-hmm. you know the NFL outsources player development to colleges the NBA outsources not all of its player development but almost all of it to colleges they have the G league one minor league maybe we should be looking in that direction so i don't know the solutions will be easy but if the simple question is is there money in major leagues budget to pay minor leaguers another 10,000 or 20,000 a year i think the answer is yes
1: what's the next step Now we're in, you know, this news is just broken. There's the sort of the the voting process. What can we expect next in terms of, you know, news
3: or any development in, in this battle? I think first we're all sort of waiting to see where Major League Baseball comes out, what they have to say, if they have anything to say at this point, and they may not. Uh, I think next we just see how successful the union is in convincing agents and minor league players that this is the best route to go. Because whether there's a public statement from Major League Baseball or not, there's certainly, I think, as you alluded to, going to be some back channel that says, boy, you really might want to think twice about this. I think the most interesting part of what happened today, early this morning, when the public announcement came out, was that there's a nonprofit group called Advocates for Minor Leaguers that has been working on this space for a couple of years. And they've been very successful, especially on social media. It isn't enough just to say, we think minor league players could be treated better. It's very effective to put up pictures on social media. of Boy, here's the meal this guy got after a game. And it's a couple turkey slices and a piece of fruit. And here's the situation. Look at the picture you can see here of five guys sharing a bedroom. So that's been super effective. What happened this morning was that the people who are the staff members for Advocates for Minor Leaguers said, we are out of here. We have accepted and been offered positions within the Major League Baseball Players Association. So what that tells you and what I learned this morning was, of course, you don't like make a union plan in one night, while everybody's been super quiet about it to keep major league baseball from finding out the advocates and the players unit have been working on this for months. And it only was when they had everything lined up and all the info sessions and all the talking points ready to go, that they announced it late on a Sunday to preempt MLB from having any immediate response. And they're ready to at least attack. And again, as this happens so often, as you mentioned, at the beginning of this broadcast major league baseball will have to react. Great tactic. I love it. All good. Well, Bill, listen, your wealth of information. Yeah, we really appreciate your time with us. All right. Take care. Thank you.
1: Have
0: a great day. Thanks for joining us on such short
1: notice, Bill. All
0: right. Anytime. So that was Bill Shaken. He is on Twitter at Bill Shaken S-H-A-I-K-I-N. Dan, a loaded, loaded episode. It was only fitting to end with Bill because I think that's our next big sports law story that we are covering. What happens with this minor league union? Bill said he had no Necessary time frame. He didn't know how Major League Baseball was going to respond, but that's you know obviously the next thing that we have to to look for, uh, and it could have some very severe ramifications across the sport of baseball. Yeah,
1: I, I think required reading for anyone in our audience is uh, to read Bill's column today in the Los Angeles Times. It's it's uh, titled "Major League Baseball Players Union Wants to Represent Minor Leaguers." That's a very generic headline. The story, however, very, very the way Bill lays out. Sort of the history of how we came to this point. I think it's very, it's very compelling and makes a compelling case for why minor leagueers, why minor league baseball players should have a union. And I and I implore everyone in our audience to check out the uh, article in today's LA Times. I think by the time our podcast comes out, it will be tomorrow or yesterday's article in the LA Times. But we'll be sure to link it when we uh, when we tweet about this podcast, but definitely required reading for anyone interested in learning more about sort of the the background and the context for how this came to be.
0: So Dan, I think that's a good place to end this episode. Loaded, loaded episode. Sports law does not sleep. For Dan, myself, the Conic Detrimental family, we will see you all next time on another episode of Conic Detrimental.